This podcast from Faith Bible Church in Reno, Nevada. Faith Bible Church is a Christ-centered Bible teaching ministry dedicated to bringing the good news of the gospel to the whole world. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And now for this week's message from Pastor Alan Battle. Today's reading is again from the book Ecclesiastes chapter 5 verses 1 through 7. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know what they are, that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business, and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger, that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity, but God is the one you must fear. This is the word of God. So we're in the midst of a series looking at the wisdom literature of the Bible called Ancient Wisdom, Modern Times. Last week we heard from the professor of Ecclesiastes as he shared with us from the perspective of a secular man that this life is pointless and meaningless. It would be better to die than to live through the misery and pain and injustice of this world under the sun. But as long as we're here, he says, There's some things we can do to make it better. We can enjoy the fruits of our labor. We can enjoy and benefit from the companionship of friends and family. It's that philosophy from the Peggy Lee song, Is That All There Is? You remember that? If that's all there is, my friend, then just keep dancing. Break out the booze and have a ball. But that was the opinion of the professor's pretended secular alter ego. And he did give us a hint of hope when he pondered whether or not the spirit of man goes up when he dies. Going up indicates that there may be something above the sun. Something that can make sense of life and give us hope for life after death. That was last week. So 
today, whoop, this crazy machine. <laughs> um, <clears throat> today's passage, uh, the professor takes off his mask again. And for a few verses, he speaks as himself, Solomon, the wise and godly teacher, the teacher of wisdom. In fact, this passage sounds more like it was taken from Proverbs than from what we've heard so far in Ecclesiastes. And his topic is worship, particularly how people should guard themselves as they worship God. So have you ever had a job interview? I'm sure that most of us have had several in our lifetimes. How did you prepare for that interview? Did you bathe? Did you brush your teeth? Did you put on nice clothes? And did you research the position? Did you prepare a resume? And when you arrived, did you arrive on time? Uh, did you cheerfully greet the interviewer? Did you listen carefully to his questions? And did you thoughtfully and respectfully answer those questions? And then finally, before you left, did you thank them for their time and their consideration? Well, of course you did. Because you were completely focused on that meeting. Because you wanted to make a good impression. Therefore, you guarded your steps in every aspect of that meeting. And the professor says that meeting with God requires a great amount of care and attention. He begins this exhortation in chapter 5 and verse 1 with, Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Now what house of God is he talking about? He's talking about the first temple in Jerusalem, the one that God had instructed Solomon himself to build. And then after he built that temple, he built his own palace just below it on the south side of the Temple Mount. So I can imagine Solomon, he's sitting on the roof of his palace and he's watching the worshipers travel up and down the stairs leading to the house of God. The temple was the center of worship for the whole nation of Israel. God laid out very detailed rules for worship and how it should be conducted. He prescribed the various duties of the priests and the Levites. He gave instructions for the daily sacrifices as well as the occasional free will offerings and all the festivals that they celebrated. And he designated a special group of musicians who were to lead the congregation in song. And for those in Jerusalem, it was a routine thing. Uh, worship was going on all the time, every day. There were morning and evening sacrifices. Worshippers were walking up the stairs leading to the Temple Mount at all hours of the day and night. And I'm sure it became kind of ho-hum for the locals. Their pilgrims coming from all over the nation, that was special for them. But worship should never become routine or perfunctory. This verse says to guard your steps. 
The phrase guard your steps means to proceed with reverence, tiptoeing into the presence of God, to come with care, to come with caution, with dignity and respect. Think about how Moses approached God at the burning bush. I mean, God told him, take off your shoes because you're entering onto holy ground. And it's not that the church building is holy. It's that we are coming before God when we meet together. For over a thousand years, worshipers made their ways up those stairs leading to the temple. And when we were in Jerusalem two years ago, we saw some of those stairs, the ones that were there at the time of Christ. And they were deliberately staggered so that worshipers couldn't just run up them. See, they were forced to take a step and then take two steps and then take a step up and then take two steps. And our guide said that this was to keep the pilgrims from rushing up to the temple instead of reverently approaching it. There's a whole group of psalms that were written specifically to sing as they went up those stairs. They're called Songs of Ascent. And they're grouped together in the book of Psalms in Psalms 120 through 134. Here's a part of Psalm 122. It says, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem, built as a city that is bound firmly together to which the tribes go up. The tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel, to give thanks to the name of the Lord. So Solomon is sitting on his roof, the roof of his palace, and he's watching the tribes go up to the Lord. And he's contemplating the nature of worship. And he's pulling from his many years of observation. Remember, he's an old man at this point. And he wants to warn us of some of the pitfalls that he's seen when it comes to worship. So he's going to warn us to guard our worship in four different areas. How we listen, how we pray, how we promise, and what we say. How we listen, how we pray, how we promise, and what we say. And this whole passage can be summed up nicely with James' exhortation in James 1.19, where he says, Be quick to listen and slow to speak. So first, the listening. Our first posture in worshiping God must be an expectation that we are here to, to listen to God, to hear from Him. <clears throat> Not what we're going to say to Him. Second half of verse 1 says, Draw near to listen. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. So, how do we draw near to listen? Well, first, we have to recognize our need to listen. Proverbs told us that the fool thinks he already knows, but the wise person knows that he doesn't know, and he's ready to learn. So here, in another song of ascent, the psalmist prepares to worship. 
In Psalm 130, verses 5 and 6, he says, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word, I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning, more than the watchman for the morning. So when you come to church, are you eager to hear from the Lord? It's not just the sermons where we hear the word of the Lord. Paul said that you and I are living epistles. Each of us reflects the Savior in our own way. We've all been given the gift of the Holy Spirit, and we can minister the word to one another. And we grow through our interaction with one another. And that's why we gather to worship instead of just listening to recordings, watching videos, reading books. And music is also an important vehicle for God's word. The songs that we sing have the power to sink deep into our hearts. So it's all of our responsibility to listen. But it is the responsibility of myself and the other elders to guard what we hear. So one of the things we've been concerned about lately is the content of the songs that we sing. And there's a lot of worship songs that lack biblical content, or even worse, have unbiblical content. Some of them, though the lyrics might be good, come from groups that have serious doctrinal problems, serious false doctrine. The music from Jesus Culture and Bethel Music coming out of Bethel Church in, in uh, Redding, California, falls into that category. Uh, they're really famous. They're really popular. But promoting their songs, even though some of their songs might be the theologically accurate, not only opens the door for other songs that contain false doctrine, but also using them helps to support their ministry which is deceiving people all over the world. So we decided that we're not going to use their songs anymore. Now look at that verse again. To draw near is to listen is better to draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools for they do not know they're doing evil. What is the sacrifice of fools? Well, Part of it is being religious without a relationship. Uh, this is performing rituals um, that aren't connected to God's word. I mean, Cain's offering, rejected by God. The sons of Aaron offered strange fire, contrary to God's word. <clears throat> so what distinguishes true from false worship? Look at another psalm, Psalm 51, verse 17. The psalmist writes, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. So we must come in repentance and in humility. Instead of <clears throat> listening to God, the fool relies on his own wisdom. And that is evil in the, in the eyes of God. So how does this work out practically? If we come to church and we hold bitterness and unforgiveness in our hearts, it's impossible for us to listen for the voice of God. 
And if we're living in persistent and unrepentant sin, then going through the motions of church is worthless and evil. So the next thing the professor wants us to guard is our prayers. Verse 2, Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven, and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. Effective prayer is humble prayer. It recognizes our smallness before an awesome God. And it recognizes our weakness before a mighty God. Another one of those songs of ascent expresses this attitude. Psalm 123. To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their masters, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy on us. We sing, He is exalted, the King is exalted on high. And do we really come with that realization? Of course, we can come boldly before the throne of grace. But that doesn't mean we come flippantly. This next verse is kind of difficult to interpret, but I think I understand what it's saying. It says, For a dream comes with much business, and a fool's voice with many words. So he's continuing with this idea of too much talking. Given the context here, I think we can say that the dreams he is talking about are the product of the fool's own desires, his own dreams. He has his own agenda, and he wants God to endorse it. In the Bible, dreams either come from God or from somewhere else. And Deuteronomy warns about false prophets who dream dreams. And in Jeremiah, these dreamers were leading the nation astray by the authority of their dreams. So the Lord told Jeremiah, Let the prophet who has a dream tell the dream, but let him who has my word speak my word faithfully. What has straw in common with wheat, declares the Lord. Everything has to be compared to the word. It's like the example that James gives of the guy who says he's going to go to such and such city and he's going to spend a year there and he's going to make a lot of money. He may be praying with all his heart, but if it's not the Lord's will, then his prayers are just a lot of words. Again, from another one of those songs of ascent. It says, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Remember, Jesus warned about fruitless prayers when he told us not to pray using vain repetitions that just heap up empty words. So next, the professor tackles the issue of making promises to God. In verses 4 and 5, it says, When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. 
God takes vows very seriously. It's one thing to make promises to men, and people of integrity will keep their promises, even to their own hurt. But making promises to God takes it to another level. And the vows that we are most familiar with are marriage vows, right? When we promise to be faithful to our spouse for a lifetime, we're making that promise not just to the spouse, but to God. And God expects us to keep our vow. The Bible says that he hates divorce and that adulterers will not go unpunished. But there's other kind of vows. Uh, The ancient Israelites could make vows of abstinence from alcohol or certain kinds of food. Uh, They could vow to dedicate a child like Samuel to the Lord. Or they could vow a sum of money to the temple. But this can apply to us today as well. I mean, we're all familiar with foxhole confessions, right? People will promise God all kinds of things just to get out of a bad situation. And more often than not, they forget those vows. But God keeps track of it. So now we move into how we talk to one another, how we speak in our worship. Verse 6, let not your mouth lead you into sin. And do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? So our mouths get us into trouble. Remember Herod, uh, he told his stepdaughter that he's going to give her anything she wants up to half of his kingdom. And she took him up on it. And she asked for the head of John the Baptist. His mouth led him into sin, even though he regretted making that promise. And the messenger in this verse is a priest in the temple. Malachi 2.7 says, For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. The fool, instead of listening to God's messenger, is talking. And he's justifying his sin. He claims that it was just a mistake. And when people call their sins mistakes, I question whether there is a sincere repentance there. There's a popular Christian comedian who got outed as a serial womanizer last year. And when several women came forward and told how he had manipulated them into bed um, as he traveled around the country doing his Christian stand-up comedy act. As a result, he had a television special canceled, as well as all of his speaking engagements. A few months later, he recorded a confession, sent it out on social media, and I watched the whole thing, and I never once heard the word sin, as in, I've sinned against these women and God. He used the word mistake. And he talked about the poor choices he had made and about his recovering and his healing of his mental health as if he was a victim of a disease. And he took a whole eight months to, quote, fix the broken pieces of his life. Now he's ready to return to ministry. 
I don't buy it. Sometimes when people find out I'm a pastor, they'll tell me things about themselves that I don't need to know. Things they regret, that they're sorry for. Be a good thing uh, if there's genuine repentance. But oftentimes people are just sorry for the consequences and they're trying to assuage their guilt. And that kind of thing makes God angry. After all, he has provided a way of forgiveness. And if we refuse to take his way, then that's a slap in his face. Look at Hebrews 10, 29. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? If we don't seek forgiveness based on what Christ did on the cross, then there's no other way to be forgiven. The ultimate result of that kind of insult to God is our destruction. For the unbeliever, that means an eternity away from God in hell. But for the disobedient believer, it means that God disciplines us on this earth. There's no such thing as purgatory. To sin in the context of worship is especially brazen. Remember what Paul told the Corinthians. He said, because some of them were indulging in fleshly desires during the Lord's Supper, they were getting sick. And some of them had even died because of that kind of behavior. God takes it seriously. So now Solomon ends up by summing everything up with what I see as the theme actually for the whole book, which uh, you can put this way. You either got vanity or you got the fear of God. So he says in verse 7, For when the dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. So why are we careful in our worship? God is awesome and he is to be feared. And the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We can't just casually stroll into his presence and expect his favor. You know what worship is? It's ascribing value to something or someone. So either we value our own puny, shallow words and ambitions, or we value the person and the works and the words of God above everything else. And we give him his rightful place as Lord in our lives and let him direct our paths. So we all have a big interview coming soon. It will be an interview for a position in God's kingdom. There's only one question, though. What qualifies you for this position? Are you going to submit a resume that says you listened to God's word and you prayed earnestly for the right things and you kept all your promises and, and you took care not to say sinful things? Well, if you're relying on those qualifications or any other good works to get that position, then you're not going to get it. 
How can I say that? Well, first of all, I can guarantee you that you often fail to hear God's voice and that you haven't always prayed for the right things or kept all your promises. And you know that you've sinned in things that came out of your mouth. So what does qualify us for a position in the kingdom of God? You remember that saying, it's not what you know, it's who you know? Well, that's true in this case. Jesus told us that on judgment day, he's going to say to people who claim to have done many good works in his name, depart from me, you workers of iniquity, I never knew you. There's only one way in, and that's knowing Jesus. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And there's only one way to establish that relationship, and that's through faith. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 says, By grace you are saved through faith, and that is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. You cannot boast about your impressive resume. It's by putting your faith in him who lived a perfect, sinless life, who died on the cross for our sins, just as it was foretold in the Old Testament, and that after three days he rose from the grave, proving that he's the only son of God, just as it had been foretold in the Old Testament. That is the only qualification we need. So then why have we been talking about the need to guard our worship? Well, it's because those things are not for our resumes. They're our job description. If you know Jesus, you already have the positions of sons and daughters of God. You're already in the kingdom of God. And what happens at the end of this life is just a transfer to corporate headquarters. And when we get there, according to Revelation 22.3, it says, No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. We'll no longer have to guard our worship. We will be worshiping him perfectly in spirit and in truth. Let's pray. Lord, we praise you that you desire our worship. Thank you that you you love us in spite of everything that we've done to offend you. Lord, that you provided a way back to yourself. Lord, we praise you that we can just look upon you and adore you and ascribe to you the worth that you deserve. Help us, Father, to guard our steps, to take care as we come before you, uh, that our worship might be acceptable in your sight. So we give you all the praise and all the honor and all the glory in the name above all names, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to the preaching of God's Word from Faith Bible Church in Reno, Nevada. 
We hope that it has been an encouragement to you and that the Word of God will fill your hearts and minds as you walk through this world. If you have been blessed by this ministry and would like to make a small donation to help defray the cost of this podcast, just click on the green Support Us button at the top of the webpage. Thank you. Thank you.